0: All right, it'd be good if you were in John 17 in your Bible or on your device. We're looking at those verses this morning, verses 20 through 26. The topic we find there, Jesus prayed for believers to be made one in him and in the Father. The title of the message, one is the onlyest number that you'll ever know. <laughs> Father, we do thank you for your word. It is alive. It's powerful. It speaks to us between the soul and the spirit. It, it uh does that which nothing else can do. And coupled with the the ministry of the spirit who is in us and who is with us this morning, we ought to be able to understand some things about your son Jesus Christ and his great salvation, uh, the grace and the mercy which are ours and the throne that we can approach, Lord, with so much confidence. And so as we work through these verses, Lord, uh, I pray that your spirit would in t- indeed be our teacher as you've promised he would be and that each of us would hear Uh, with ears uh, to hear, Lord, what we need for our church and for each of us individually. We pray in Jesus' name, and if you agreed, you said, Amen. amen. I know what you're wondering. Why don't Anastasia and Drizella recognize Cinderella? Or her stepmother? Why doesn't the prince recognize Cinderella? Her transformation was so dramatic, it was so fantastic, they could not make the identification. Every Christian tells a Cinderella story. Christians go from rags to riches. Before a person is saved, they are described in the Bible as dressed in filthy rags, inappropriately dressed for heaven. When you are saved, the Lord takes away your filthy garments and he replaces them with what is called a robe of righteousness. Incredible riches and rewards await us. We will, too, make a dramatic, fantastic entrance in the future. Uh, In 2 Thessalonians, Paul said, When Jesus comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed, that day is the second coming of Jesus to the earth, ending the great tribulation. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says Jesus will be glorified through the lives of believers whom he has transformed by making saints out of sinners. Uh, And what that means is that the Lord is coming back and we will be coming back with him in our glorified bodies and folks on the earth will see uh, what God has done. Jesus finished his prayer for his disciples by looking forward to the success of their mission. He prayed for those who will believe in him through their word. All those who have believed until now and all those who will believe until his second coming are in that group. And that puts us squarely in it as well. Jesus thus prayed for you. And and without stretching anything, you can honestly believe that and say that, that because that prayer was for everyone who believed. And if you are a believer, then Jesus prayed for you. You were on his mind and heart. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, one day we will be one. And number two, today we are one to win. Let's take a look at becoming one with the Lord in verses 20 through 24. Now, it's common to apply these words of Jesus to Christian unity. This whole section is often taught from the point of view of Christian unity. One very excellent Bible commentary says, in fact, Jesus requested unity for future believers he was praying for a unity of love a unity of obedience to God and his word and a united commitment to his will now I'm reading out of the New King James version but we can scan verses 20 through 26 and as you do which word or excuse me which verse uses the word unity as you look down at those verses again which verse uses the word unity well I'll tell you none of them do because it's not there And let's talk about unity for just a moment. It is important. Unity is a major, major important thing. It's just not being taught in this area of Scripture. You'll see what is in a minute. Take a guess how many times unity occurs in the Bible. Lots of guesswork this morning. I would have gotten this wrong for sure. Again, in my New King James Bible, it is used only three times. Once by David in the Psalms and twice in the New Testament. Both of those usages are in the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.3, we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Then in chapter 4, verse 13, he said, we will all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And in the verses in between, he describes the local church ministering to itself through the gifts and the talents that the Holy Spirit gives its members. Uh, harmoniously living together in the exercise of their gifts, maintaining unity. And so unity in the church uh, is something that we don't create. It, It exists before we get saved. It is a spiritual thing. The Bible says it is of the spirit. And so when you got saved... Probably you loved everybody when you got saved. Do you remember that? It's like, I love you and I love you and I got no problems with anybody and you embezzled money from me and you did that, but I forgive you and I love you because Jesus Christ. Well, that's the unity of the spirit in the body of Christ. It's like, hey, we're all in this together. You're my brother, I'm your sister, that kind of thing. And it's wonderful. However, temperament, theological outlook, worship styles, personality conflicts and things like that, can undermine unity. So we start united and then we tend to divide. J.C. Ryle writes, how often Christians have wasted their strength contending against their brethren instead of contending against sin and the devil. How repeatedly they have given occasion to the world to say, when you have settled your internal differences, we will believe. And so that is, so we start at a point of unity and we can lose it. And then Paul says, no, no, go, go to the church, exercise your gifts, let gifts be exercised upon you, live together with these brothers and sisters, maintain unity because we're going to be brought to a point of maturity when we have it anyway. And so why uh, upset the apple cart, which is a verse I've, or a saying I've never understood. Uh, but anyway, do you understand what I mean? So that's Unity. Um, that's not what Jesus is talking about in our verses. Scan the verses again. What word is repeated over and over again? Well, it's the word one. Being one with God is different from the unity of believers. Okay, so um, unity is one thing. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what the verses are really about, oneness. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus here called the gospel their word. Once they believed, it became theirs to share with others. It became personal to them. If you're saved, the gospel is your word. Now, it's obviously God's word, but it's yours in that it's transformed your life, and you can share it in that fullness. And so that's what happens when we give the gospel. The message never changes. There's only one gospel, Old Testament New Testament. We're saved by grace through faith uh, plus nothing, no works. Sometimes people get confused. They think, well, in the Old Testament, they had the law. And if you kept the law, then you were saved. That's not true. The law wasn't given uh, for you to keep it because no one can keep it perfectly. You were saved beside the law. Abraham, for example, before the law was given through Moses, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed. He simply believed what God told him. What he knew about God, he believed by God's revelation, and he was saved. And so no matter what dispensation of, Christian, of uh, you know, the Christian life there is from the garden forward, we're always saved the same way. Many of you have traced your ancestry. Do you wonder ever who your spiritual ancestors might be? We all trace back in one sense to Peter because he preached the first sermon that produced born-again believers. It was the birth of the church. And then those guys and gals went around and they were sharing their faith with others who shared their faith with others who shared their faith with others until somewhere the gospel was shared with you and you were received by the Lord. And then you've shared with others. And so I would—I think it'd be fascinating to know the particular people through whom the gospel came to me. Much more interesting than uh, physical ancestry, right? I mean, the twists and turns that the gospel took to get to me in San Bernardino in 1979, uh, or wherever you were, that, it's gotta be a great story that I want to research in heaven. Jesus prayed for you, as I said. He continues to pray for you. Add to that the indisputable fact that the Father always answers Jesus' prayers, and you can conclude that all things are working together for good in your life to bring glory to God. Jesus only prays for the will of the Father, and the Father always answers Jesus' prayers, and He is praying day and night for you. And so, whatever's happening in your life, uh, God is working it out for good to His glory. Verse 21. That they all may be as one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. One, 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 one. Twice here, then three more times in our text, Jesus referred to one. Must be important. A.W. Pink declared Who is competent to define the manner in which the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father? As this wondrous prayer stretches forward into eternity, only in eternity will it be fully understood. So, if you're like me and you're reading this and thinking, "Man, this is my my head hurts trying to think about how Jesus is one; He's one in the Father. I'm in Jesus." Pink, who's a great Bible commentator, a deep, uh, deeply thoughtful man, says, "Yeah, we will not cannot understand this until eternity." And so, before we begin to define or describe one. Let's glance at verse 23 and the phrase that they may be perfect in one and then glance at verse 24, the phrase that they may be with me where I am. You and I will be one with God the Father and with Jesus when you and I are perfect and with Jesus where he is. And so this is really a looking forward to the future by Jesus. He is talking about something that hasn't happened yet. And that in one sense can't happen until we are finished, until we are complete, until we are all in heaven with him, where he is. What will be in the future, however, impacts or should impact how we live in the present. Example, it'd be nice to plan for retirement, right? And to, to say, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna work till I'm however old, and then we're gonna do this. Right now, it's to move to Tennessee. Uh, that's what everybody's doing. Last month, it was someplace else, but now it's Tennessee, and. Uh, because the humidity is not as bad there as it is wherever else they were going. But anyway, uh, and so you plan for the future, right? And, and since you don't, nobody makes enough money, really. And so you think, well, we put a little way here, put a little way there. We have to scrimp and save. And I'd like to buy that, but, but we got to think about retirement. You know, we, we need to have enough money to, to travel and to do all those things. Yeah, that's great. Everybody does that, right? Well, that's what we ought to do spiritually as well. We ought to say, hey, uh, you know, we need to be planning for the future. But in order to do that, you need to know something about the future. You need to know what God's gonna do for you and with you in the future and that you can store up treasure in heaven and those kinds of things. And so uh, it's it's the most normal thing in the world to say that the future impacts my thinking in the present. And so some people think, well, why are we always talking about prophecy and looking forward and all? Because it impacts you right now probably more than anything else, will. Again, quoting A.W. Pink, though the actual bestowment of glory be yet future, it is presented for faith to lay hold of and enjoy even now. The Apostle Paul understood this impact when he said, whom God predestined, those he called, whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, those he also glorified. Now he's talking about Christians like you and I, and he's saying he also has glorified us. Well, you and I aren't glorified. I don't have my glorified body. You don't have your glorified body. We will one day if we're Christians. What's, what we're being taught there behind the scenes is that God sees you as already complete, as what he's going to do with you, as, as what you will be, even though we won't be until we're with Jesus. Knowing I am predestined to be glorified I want to cooperate with God the Holy Spirit in transforming me day by day to be more like Jesus. That's the whole plan. Quick word about predestination. You you can't just drop that word without talking about it. No one is predestined to be saved or to perish. After you are saved, you are predestined to be made like Jesus until you are glorified. H.A. Ironside explained you will know there is no reference to heaven or hell, only to Christ likeness eventually. Nowhere we are told in Scripture that God predestinated one man to be saved and another to be lost. Men are to be saved or lost eternally because of their attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So this word predestination, we're not afraid of it. The Bible teaches predestination. It is something that happens to you after you are saved. It doesn't mean you're going to get saved. It doesn't predetermine who will be saved. Once you get saved, God says, now it's your destiny to be complete in Jesus Christ, and one day we will awake in his likeness. Throughout this prayer, Jesus emphasized that he was one with God the Father, so much so that he told Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Today we might say that Jesus and the Father were perfectly in sync with one another. Illustrations fall short, but maybe this one will help a little bit. Pairs figure skating is defined by the International Skating Union as the skating of two persons in unison who perform their movements in such harmony with each other as to give the impression they are one person. When Jesus was on earth, he voluntarily set aside the use of his deity and lived as a human being. The whole time, he was perfectly in sync with his father. He did what his father told him to do. He said what his father told him to say. And as a result, the world could see the father in Jesus. They were absolutely in sync. No stumbles, no falls. Since God the Holy Spirit is in you, you are capable of being in sync with Jesus and with the father. Just as Jesus revealed the father, so can you. Have you ever tried to watch a movie whose sound was out of sync? I, it's one of those things that drives me crazy. I can't do it. We can become out of sync with our Savior. It can be on account of sin or spiritual sleepiness or something else. I think it's often because we just refuse to believe. We read a command in the Bible, and often our first question is something like, well, how do I do that? And then we tend to default to our own energy rather than yield to the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know... When you get saved, if those of you who are saved as an adult, you probably, you may or may not have come forward and said, well, how do I do this now? How do I get saved? And it's like, no, you, do you, did you believe? Yeah, well, then you're saved. Uh, the, the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, well, you need to believe. That's it. There, there is nothing to do. And and then we realize and we think, oh, I'm saved. And what an amazing thing it is to be saved, to have your sins forgiven, to be on your way to heaven, Right and yet what a big thing to believe do you imagine that because you're saying hey five seconds ago i was this now i am completely different new creature in jesus christ i've got the lord living in me by the his holy spirit i'm on my way to heaven etc etc and that's a big belief right and then you you become older in the lord uh, more mature and, and you can't get along with anybody you know people who drive you crazy or you're doing and you say how can I do this or you get married wow how do you figure that out how many marriage jokes are there and you know that kind of thing and then you read in the scripture if you're a man you say you know uh, you know I need to love my wife the way Jesus loved the church I'm out of here you know that that no you say how do I do that and so you go to the bookstore and you get the how to love your wife like Jesus loved the Church" book. And all it does, if it does anything, is embellish those words. And it should say, you can do it. You believe to be saved, now you can believe in your sanctification and just do it. You won't do it perfectly, but you can do it. That the world may believe that you sent me. world is the unbelievers who inhabit the earth. One with God is what he is making us. Unbelievers ought to be able to look at you, a believer, and conclude that you are so different because of Jesus that he must have been sent by God from heaven. In other words, there's something supernatural about you. Verse 22, and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. We defined glory earlier in this chapter as making visible the invisible God. It's what Jesus did and it's what we are empowered to do. The Apostle Paul said something that simultaneously terrifies me and inspires me. He said in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Other versions say, follow me as I follow Christ. He was saying, it's a version of him saying, if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus because I am imitating him. Now, of course, Jesus uh, rather, Paul had a whole different path in his life, uh, many different ministries that were unlike anything Jesus did. But in all of them, he properly represented the Lord and, and only did what, to, to a certain extent, to the extent a human being is able to. He did what the Lord wanted him to do and said what the Lord wanted him to say uh, to the point that we would probably all agree that he's the greatest missionary and maybe the greatest Christian of all time. Uh, Of course, if we said that in his presence, he'd probably punch you in the nose. You know, which is what makes him so great. But uh, you know what I mean. But uh, you know, I I can't imagine somebody saying that of me. I'd like it. I mean, I can imagine somebody saying, "If you've seen Pastor Gene, you've seen Super Chicken or something like that." You know. If you've seen, put your name in there. What do people see? Do they see Jesus? Well, that's the goal. That's the you know that's the thing. And what's nice is that God in His grace will cover for us as He's working on us. Uh, and and you know you're thinking I'm I'm flubbing up and messing up and you know goofing off all the time. And then people they 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 don't see it, you know they don't or they don't see the depth of it anyway. And they still uh, you know God covers for you by grace so that you can share the gospel. God in His grace covers for us. That doesn't mean we do nothing. Let go and let God is not biblical. F. Leroy Fourlines writes, and he says, In our relationship with God, we are both dependent and independent. We are dependent in the sense that we need his help and cannot be what we should be without his help. We are independent in the sense that even though we cannot be what we should be without God's help, in a very real sense, our actions are our own. God does not treat us like puppets. We have latitude for obedience and disobedience. And so when I'm talking about believing God, it's believing God and acting in obedience uh, is what we're talking about. Um, You know, you don't just sit around and say, well, Lord, if you want me to love my wife the way, you know, you love the church, I'm ready. But I'm just going to be sitting here most of the afternoon. And, and, you know, but, you know, so you you say, "Okay, I need to obey that. And and then you think about how did Jesus love you? And then you, you figure it out. Verse 23, I in them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Perfect in one comes later. The first application of these words, again, is for the future. Now, we mentioned our return with Jesus at his second coming. We will be perfect, and all the unbelievers on earth who survived the Great Tribulation will realize Jesus was the heaven-sent Savior and they will see what God intended for the human race to be made perfect as we return with him. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Those whom the Father gave Jesus are the church, all the believers of the church age, which began on the day of Pentecost with the preaching of the gospel, And ends at the resurrection and rapture. I see nothing in the giving that limits the gospel when it is preached. Jesus draws all men to himself. Whosoever will believe him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God is not willing that any should perish but that all come to salvation. He is the savior of all men but you must believe to be saved. God provides the grace to enable you to believe and then to receive or reject Jesus. Being one with the triune God is in your future. I'm sure that there's a mystical component to it, but we can only begin to understand what that means. Only in eternity will that be fulfilled. We're like the pair skater who executes the jump in sync with his or her partner, but then falls to the ice upon landing. He or she gets up, and they get back in sync as quickly as possible. Maybe you can't stick the landing, as it were. You fall in or you keep falling in the same area. Get up and just get back in sync with God. He he's offers you the forgiveness. He's given you the instruction, stay in sync. Verses 25 and 26, today we are one to win. Sent is another important word in Jesus' prayer for the 11 and their spiritual descendants. Jesus was sent into the world to show humans God the Father those who believe are sent into the world to tell non-believers God sent Jesus to save them. Once saved, he sends them, and so it goes, generation after generation. By the way, it's not a very good plan on paper to depend on human beings, right? I mean, this entirely, every, it's been said that every generation is, or excuse me, that Christianity is always one generation from extinction, all you have to do is have a generation where people don't follow the mandate to share Christ, and there would be no more Christianity after a while. But God says, no, this is the way we're going to do it, because it shows my glory, it shows my grace, it shows my power, and we're, I'm going to choose weak, foolish human beings who have the treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels, and, and this is going to work. Don't, don't you worry. And it, it has, and It will. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I've known you, and these have known that you sent me. Jesus would shortly go to the cross. He described his Father as righteous. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the penalty for sin demanded by the righteous, thrice holy God, and then his death on the cross enabled God to declare believing sinners righteous to save you through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, we have to deal with sin. Any philosophy, any religion, any psychology, it has to start with sin. There's a problem, and the problem is sin. Uh, we, we're, the human race is under the penalty of, uh, or the, the power of sin uh, before you're even born. When you're born, you are born with a sin nature, and then you sin. You disobey God throughout your life. And God is a holy God, and he can't wink at that. He can't ignore it. He can't overlook it. He has to deal with it. Sin has a penalty, and that penalty is death. Somebody has to die when there's sin. Now, the way God set it up, Jesus could come as a man, as the God-man, and die in our place, taking our punishment, paying the penalty, so that we might be free from all that and be saved. In that way, God preserves his holiness, his righteousness, uh, his justice, as it were, But he also is able to extend his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Sometimes we're told that God is just and the justifier of those who come to Christ. And so he remains just and holy, but he also is the justifier of sinners. And basically, we are saved sinners, right? There are sinners here and saved sinners. And believe me, it's better to be a saved sinner to to having been declared righteous so that when God sees you, he sees Jesus Christ. The Bible Knowledge commentary, uh, commentary rather, notes, the world failed to see God revealed in Jesus, but a few disciples did, and they believed that God had sent him. Again, a few in each generation will likewise respond to the gospel and be sent scattered into the world of unbelievers. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. God's plan of salvation will not fail to find its successful completion. God, by his providence, will move it along, just as he said he will. Verse 26, I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus declared to them for three and a half years, his words and works were the words and works of the father. They saw in Jesus the perfect expression, the perfect image of the father. He said that he would still declare his word. Jesus ascended into heaven He still declares the Father by the Holy Spirit, whom he promised to send after he returned to heaven. And he will declare it on into the future. In heaven, we will learn more and more and more about the love and the grace of God. Jesus ended his prayer by emphasizing love, the same love that the Father has for the Son, he has for you, if you are a son or daughter by the new birth. I have a hard time believing that, but it's true. I mean, that's one of those things... Because Jesus said it's true. So the love that the father has for Jesus, he has for you individually. Not just us corporately, and you are tagging along, but for you individually. And that's an amazing thing. Is there a love greater than the love of the father for the son? The, than the, you know, the love of God? He loves you that much. Jesus prayed asking the father to love his followers as much as he loved Jesus. And as we said before, the father can never say no to the son. You and I are so, so loved by the Lord. Jesus prayed, I in them. He's in them, in believers, by God the Holy Spirit, taking up residence in our hearts. God the Holy Spirit's fingerprints are everywhere in the Gospel of John. Typical of him, however, he isn't always named and doesn't draw any attention to himself. I'm often critical of Pentecostals. Truth be told, I admire their passion for the Lord it wouldn't hurt any of us to express more genuine joy, but we, and we must cautiously guard against drifting towards a cessationist attitude regarding the Holy Spirit and his gifts. Uh, some churches say, oh yeah, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, all of them, but they're they never exercised, never encouraged. And, and so those are problems. Now, we would identify the church of, uh, in the city of Corinth as Pentecostal. In his letters to them, especially the first one, the Apostle Paul encouraged their enthusiasm but he wanted their expression of the gifts to be brought under control. He did not, for example, forbid them from speaking in tongues as if that was not a gift or it was going to pass away. He said, look, if you're going to do it, here's some rules so that it's not a, a, a garbled mess and so that you don't, and so people don't think you're crazy. He actually said that so that you aren't mistaken for crazy people. He taught them how to do it so it would minister to others as it was meant to. Dr. Michael Spiegel reminds us Spiritual gifts are not simply what the Spirit gives to you. They are what the Spirit gives to the church through you. We can't commend the overly excessive exercise of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It draws attention away from Jesus, and that is something that God the Holy Spirit will never, ever do. And so anything that draws attention to a man or away from Jesus, that cannot be of the Holy Spirit, no matter how much people say that it is. And so there's a, you know, Scripture maintains a wonderful, harmonious balance in these areas. Maybe you've been at a service where a missionary was prayed for because they were being sent out. You are sent out no less than a missionary. God has sent you to the places that compromise your world of believers. You are there with the Great Commission to uh, make disciples of all the nations and to see that they're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is with you always because the Holy Spirit is in you. I recommend that you go back before Jesus' prayer to chapter 14 and read through the end of this chapter, verse 26 of chapter 17. Read it more than once, give it a chance, and then underline or highlight everything that you ought to believe. As as we've studied this, we've talked about lots of different things that we should believe and that we maybe don't. And then once you have that list, these are all the things that I should believe, uh, because I'm a Christian and, and here's God's promise to me, then just ask yourself of each on the list, do I believe it? And if you don't, believe it, because that's how we activate this wonderful thing we call the Christian life.